Why does a letter like the one that Paul wrote Timothy at the end of his years still matter to us? How does it still speak to us? How does it still challenge us, remind us, encourage us, help us? Well, much like the culture that Timothy lived in, but in reverse, they were a pre-Christian culture, we've become a post-Christian one. We've moved from Christian to post-Christian, and now we're moving quickly into an anti-Christian culture. No longer can we assume the agreement of this world. No longer do we find ourselves at peace with it, not with its leadership, not with its cultural norms, not even with government. The Apostle Paul wrote these words to Timothy earlier in this letter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He told Timothy this, he says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When he wrote those words, he wasn't just telling Timothy. Timothy, here in the context of Ephesus, where you have so much paganism and godlessness and immorality, if you publicly live for Christ, if you publicly declare Christ, the good news of the gospel, you're going to suffer persecution. He says, all who desire to live a godly life, if you desire to live a life that pleases God first, that honors Jesus as king, you will stand out, you will stand apart, you might stand against the culture that you live in, you will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. As one writer put it, the only Christians who get persecuted are those who, one, share the gospel when the government says not to, compare that to the book of Acts, or number two, stand against evil when the majority are towing the line. Compare that to the book of Daniel. If you haven't already been doing these things when you had the freedom to do it, sharing the gospel or standing against evil, what in the world makes you think you'll do it when you don't have those freedoms? The government will not care if you keep the gospel inside your church walls and only vote against evil. Every oppressive government has allowed churches to meet just as long as they keep their mouths shut. Nazi Germany, Soviet Union, China, even they have state-controlled churches. If persecution is coming, don't worry. You won't see any of it as long as your Christianity is limited to your church attendance. But for those who, like us, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, who desire to live godly lives, these words are most encouraging, most helpful, perhaps more so than any other in this entire letter. Paul wrote in chapter 4, verse 6, this to Timothy. He said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth. I've done all of these things, the fight, the battle, the race, the difficulty, the challenge, the endurance, the pain, the suffering, all those things. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And just so that we understand that Paul was not setting himself apart from us as some sort of elite member of God's family or elite commander in God's army or some elite recipient of God's graces, he says, this which the Lord will award to me on that day is not only to me but to all those who love his appearing. And a simple assessment of those words to me are these. Whatever it costs us, whatever challenges we face internally, a challenge to persevere externally, the pressures on us, the persecution towards us, whatever cost we might pay, he is infinitely worth it. 
He's worth it. He will award us on that day who long for his appearing. Paul's words remind me a little bit of the closing words of Jude. Verses 24 and 25, he says, To him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. What's the end result to those who faithfully follow Jesus to the end? Remember the words of Jude. You will be presented before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That's the aim. Would you pray with me this morning? As I pray, I want to borrow the words of Scotty Smith, who wrote this prayer, and I share it with you in prayer. Heavenly Father, the older I get, the more I care about finishing my journey well. And the more I realize that finishing well is neither automatic nor easy. So I wish with more years came less temptation I wish that getting weaker physically magically meant we get stronger spiritually, like a gracious trade-off. But that's not the way it works. The gospel is the end to all my merit, but not all my muscle. Every relationship and a variety of circumstances reveal that I still need Jesus today just as much as the first day you placed me safely in Christ. So I abandon myself to the promises which overflow in this passage this little waterfall of mercy and grace with which Jude finishes this letter. I praise you, Father, that the most important grasp in the gospel is yours, not mine. I don't trust in my love for you, but in your love for me. You will keep me from falling away. And if I do falter, fall, or fail, you will lovingly pick me up. You don't love me more when I do it right, and you don't love me less when I don't. As hard as it is to imagine, Father, especially in times of my weakness, one day you will present me before your glorious presence without fault and with great joy. How many times do I have to hear that good news from my heart to really believe it? Without fault and with great joy. Without fault and with great joy. Father, in response to so great a salvation, may my heart passionately proclaim with myriads of angels and countless believers to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority in this life and in the life to come. Lord Jesus, trusting in the life you lived for me as the second Adam, the life you gave for me as the Lamb of God, and the life you now live through me as my hope of glory, I will finish well, without fault, with great joy. So very amen, we pray in your glorious and loving name. Amen. I want to read to you this text, these sort of emotional, personal, closing words of Paul. And I hope you feel the weight of this. I hope you feel the humanity of this for Paul the Apostle, who's not just a theologian, not just a missionary, not just an apostle, communicator, teacher, but a person in the fight. It says in chapter 4, verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Titus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. 
So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. These are the final days of one who ran well and finished. One who fought hard and won. One who was about to receive the crown of righteousness which the Lord had for him. Paul was arrested, probably for the last time, in the summer around A.D. 66. We know he left his belongings behind at Troas. We know some of them listed in the text. We see things like his papyrus rolls, his papyrus, which, he had, which contained handwritten notes, presumably, of his own interactions with Jesus when Jesus himself was his teacher. Perhaps he had copies of his own epistles, maybe Luke's writings too. In addition, most likely as a longtime teacher of the Word and a former rabbi, teacher of the Jewish faith, he had his own copies of the Scriptures that he kept with him everywhere. Probably even left his winter sheepskin coat behind. The immediate cause of his arrest was presumably the testimony of Alexander the coppersmith. Literally translated, Alexander, quote, informed many evil things against me. This coppersmith was testifying against him, informing against him. The word for informer is what's most connected with this word. And if it happened at Troas, that would make sense because he told Timothy, as you're passing through there, you beware also of him. You be careful of him. Now this Alexander may have been an idol maker. He may have opposed Paul on theological grounds because he challenged his religion. More likely, he challenged him also on economical grounds because he challenged his livelihood but beyond all this Alexander did more than inform on Paul according to the scriptures he strongly opposed his message and to add to Paul's distress in Paul's own words he says this all who are in Asia deserted me arrested opposed deserted among these included Phygelus Hermogenes when Paul says, all deserted me, it's probably a bit of emotional hyperbole. It's probably not statistical, but it does sum up the sense of, of the cowering response of the early church. And so many of those first century believers, to the great pressure that was being placed on them by the government, by the culture, and the threats of persecution that were very real around them. And then, arrested, opposed, deserted, Paul's hurried down to Rome and flung into jail. Seized and shackled, placed in a rigorous confinement in Rome. He is not treated as an upstanding citizen who gets to answer on his own. He's chained like a criminal, condemned to die. Perhaps you recall from history that it was Nero who started the great fire in Rome, presumably so he could remake Rome according to his own likings, so he could recreate Rome in his own image with his own design. But he blamed that great fire of Rome on the Christians living there as a pretense for their persecution, imprisonment, and death. And now Paul, the apostle, is being treated as if he were one of those fire starters, one of those arsonists who destroyed Rome. Paul thought that the believers there and the believers in the surrounding communities would testify on his behalf, that they would stand up with him and stand up for him and tell who he really was and what he'd really done. And his message was a message of, of peace and hope, not a message of insurrection. But those testifying for him were not to be found. Not only had Nero instituted a great fire or begun a great fire, he'd instituted a great terror 
a great era of persecution against the church, against the believers that was unprecedented. And presumably, he had driven all those who would stand up for Paul away. And now on the cusp of Paul's death, he's virtually alone and apparently lonely. And he's writing for the fellowship and the friendship of those that mattered most to him. There was one Asian Christian, someone who had some standing in the world that he lived in, some substance the eyes of authority, someone who would stand to lose quite a bit by associating with Paul, yet he came anyway. Onesiphorus of Ephesus was, quote, not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me eagerly and found me. Now here at the end of his life, we see Paul writing Timothy. Perhaps it's by Luke's hand, who's there with him. Luke's pen, pinning the words, but Paul's heart, giving them. And he asked him to come to me before winter. Maybe Paul anticipated he would not make it that long. Come to me before winter, and this time bring John Mark with him, for he can, quote, help me in the work. It's amazing to consider that in the very last of his days, chained up in a Roman dungeon, that the work continues. Remember, Paul said, I am bound, but the gospel is not bound. And that there's one named John Mark who before had little use for Paul, so much so that he would not take him with him on, a, on another journey. Now saying he has much use for me. What mattered most at the end of Paul's life were the people that he had invested himself most into. The people he poured his life into. At the end, what is he talking about? He's talking about people. He's talking about the people that he loved, the people that he cared about, the people that he gave the gospel to, the people that he lived the gospel in front of, the people that he personally challenged and taught, mentored and discipled. In his little book, Why I Love the Apostle Paul, John Piper writes this. He says, one measure of the greatness of a man is not only that he practices what he preaches, but also that he doesn't consider himself above the ordinary means of grace that all Christians need, including the fellowship of other believers. He said, Paul bears his authority and power and reputation without pretense, and he freely admits his need for the refreshment of Christ that comes through other believers. His humble need for, his delight in, the friendship and the partnership of others makes him all the more winsome to us. Paul was not a rogue. Paul didn't operate independently. He worked in and with and through and for the sake of the church, and just like I do, just like you do, he needed the fellowship of believers, and he knew that God gives his comfort, God offers his strength, and that the burdens of responsibility and the weight of challenges and the pressures of difficulties are all helped borne better by each other. So what mattered most were the people, but because of that, what hurt the most was the abandonment of the same. I mean, you can feel it in Paul's words. You can feel the you can feel not only the frustration theologically, but you can feel the personal sense of hurt emotionally. Demas, for love of this world. Verse 16, the all for fear of it. Some for love of this world, some for fear of this world, but they had abandoned him. Demas once had been one of Paul's fellow workers in the gospel, according to Philemon 1.24 and Colossians 4.14. He served alongside Mark and Luke and others. During Paul's first imprisonment, he was there with him in Rome. There's also some evidence biblically that Demas was with Paul during his second imprisonment, at least for a little while. Then something happened. Demas forsook Paul, abandoned the ministry, and, and left town. The Greek word in the original implies that Demas had not merely left, but he had left him in the lurch. 
as if when Paul needed him the most, when his presence was most vital, when the damage would be the greatest, that's when he, when he left. Paul's in prison facing a death sentence and Demas set sail. So what happened? What became of him? We don't know. What, what led to this departure? We don't know. We only have those words. Demas, in love with this world, has abandoned me. Maybe Demas, over a long arc of time, began to give him to that relentless temptation to find his joy, his satisfaction, his pleasure in the stuff of this world. Maybe his exposure to a cosmopolitan, culturally rich, financially prosperous, worldly city like Thessalonica had slowly over time captured his heart. Perhaps he weighed in his mind the worth of this world, the rewards of the stuff of this life, the things that he could enjoy and touch and feel, and in short-sightedness, he chose them instead of the reward of Christ. Whatever the case, he walked away. For Paul, his faithful surrender to the Lord's call had ultimately taken every tangible and temporal thing from him. Consider his last days, every tangible and temporal thing. We know that he had lost his health. We know that the physical beatings had had a cumulative effect. We know the emotional despair. We know the difficulties and struggle of, of travel. We know the physical effects of things like snake bites and shipwrecks. All those things have taken a toll on him. And now, if he doesn't die at the executioner's hand, he'll die of poor health. He's lost his freedom, and this time it will be final. Shackled and chained, and he will not be remanded into his own custody again. This is it. And he's even lost his possessions. What little things he had in this life of any material value, he asked Timothy to retrieve for him. Bring my coat. Bring my personal writings. And the equivalent to us, bring my Bible. This was it. This was all that he had left. And soon, his faithfulness to the Lord would cost him his own life. This is the reality that he faced. Now, since the time of Paul... There have been many martyrs like this. There are some being martyred just like this today. In fact, persecution of Christians is greater in the world today than it was at the time of Paul. And at any time in between, we're at its peak. And it's only going to worsen. But through it all, and all the way to the finish, here's what you can be sure of regarding Paul. He remained confident in God. And he remained faithful to God. Confidence, not in himself, but in the promises that God had made him. Not in the equation of I've done this much good so I'm going to receive this much reward, but in the generosity of God which is beyond our comprehension. That was his confidence and he remained faithful because of that all the way to the very end. What do we see in this text of evidence of confidence and faithfulness? We know one, he was sustained by God's presence. Even when he was alone and just like you and I would be, wanting the company of people that we love and people that we know who have loved us, Wanting the comfort of friends, wanting the fellowship of others to to pray with you, to speak hope to you and truth to you, to physically be present, an arm around, a hand on the shoulder. When those were absent, he was sustained by God's comforting presence. He says in verse 17, as he speaks of the abandonment of so many, in fact all, he says, he says, but the Lord stood by me. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I pray that the time ever comes where 
you or I feel abandoned, we feel like we're in some moment or some cause forced to stand alone, I, I pray that we too would have the keen sense of the presence of Christ with us. That we would have a keen sense of the fulfillment of the promise of Christ to us. I'll never leave you or forsake you. The Lord stood by me and the Lord strengthened me. He remained convinced, even in a prison, even facing death, which is so clear in his writings, he knew what was to come. He remained convinced of God's sovereignty over this, even in his suffering. Never do you see in Paul questions of God's fairness or God's purposefulness, God's intentions or God's goodness. Even in this moment, as much as we might try to imagine the difficulty of it, the painfulness of it, he remains confident. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, but not just for my own sake. It's not just for my own comfort. It's not for my own ease. It's not so that this could be more bearable to me. But God was working a purpose here so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Why is God strengthening me? Why is God helping me? Why is God allowing me? Why is God causing me to suffer as I do? Why am I in this prison? Because there are more people that he intends to hear this message of good news. And he will not stop. He will not take his hand off of me. He will not cease protecting me or enabling me until that is accomplished. Paul understood this well. He understood that he was an instrument in God's hands. And that's not the lowliest of positions to be simply made a tool, a hammer against a nail or a, a pen versus paper or a key versus a lock, but it is the highest calling to be a tool in the hands of the master. And that's why he had yielded his life to Christ. He had died to his own plans. Paul had long ago given up the pursuit of stuff. He had long ago given up the pursuit of pleasure. He had long ago given up the pursuit of his own positions and influence and authority. In fact, he had died to all of those. And he made it clear that he lived only now for Christ. And what might be one of the most defining statements of Paul's life and his perspective on his life, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. This is a man who's still alive. If you remember Bill's uh, message last weekend, and the Muslim man who'd given his life to Christ, and now being persecuted physically by his own family. And he says, I've already died. I've already given my life to Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This life has already been abandoned to him. There's nothing you can take from me. It all belongs to Christ. Whatever Christ chooses to do for me, I will receive gladly. You see, Paul knew something that I'm convinced of in the Scriptures ought to be true of our thinking. It's true of us. It ought to be true of our thinking. It ought to be true of our conviction, our beliefs. And that is this. Paul recognized that he was immortal until God said otherwise. So great was his sense of the power of God, the controlling authority of God, what we would say the sovereignty of God, the right of God to do what he wills, the power of God to accomplish the same. He knew that his life was never in the hands of the Romans. His fate was never in the hands of the Jewish leaders. He, he was never at the mercy of the crowds. But God alone held his life in his hands. In verse 17 at the end, in verse 18, he says, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Whether that is literal or figurative, we're not sure. The concept remains the same. There certainly were Christians 
who are being put to death in the arena. We know this. We know this historically. We've seen the movies. Whether that would happen to a Roman citizen like Paul is probably debatable. I think the concept is figurative. I was spared from execution. Why? The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. At what point might I face the mouth of the lion? At what point might I face the blade of the executioner? When the Lord says so. When the Lord allows so. To those who had harmed him in his life, great harm, he said, like Alexander the coppersmith, he forewent retribution. Faithful to what he taught to the very end. Faithful to the very scriptures that he wrote and the sermons that he preached. After telling Timothy that Alexander the coppersmith did him great harm, he quotes Psalm 28, verse 4. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. Remaining true to his own teaching, Romans 12, 19, to never avenge yourselves. He says to Timothy, but God will take care of him. To those who had failed him, like John Mark, he demonstrates much grace. Holding no burdens, no bitterness, no angst, no animosity towards young Mark. He shows him grace. In Acts chapter 15, Paul had so vehemently agreed with his partner Barnabas, the encourager, the right hand, that Paul had enjoyed so much during his first missionary journey. He had so agreed with him, violently disagreeing perhaps even, certainly vehemently disagreeing. They part ways over the person of John Mark. He was of no use to Paul anymore. Acts 15, 38, regarding Mark, it said, Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In Paul's eyes, John Mark had been a quitter, but now it's different. Now he's a finisher. This one he had no use for before, he now finds useful for gospel ministry. And God had done a work in Mark's heart and life and fruitfulness and effectiveness, and his gospel letter would be a profound impact on the church and the world. And Paul showed him grace. And ultimately, all the way to the very end, he's measuring his life by this one great standard. This one overarching banner, this one measurement that supersedes all others. Did I bring glory to my Savior? Did I bring glory to my Savior? Did this honor my King? Did this sermon speak rightly of Him? Was I bold enough for His sake? Did I bear up under suffering as he suffered for me? Did I honor him in my arrests? Did I honor him in my imprisonments and my punishments? Did, did I honor him in my interactions with those people who were both for and against me? Did I honor him privately? Did I honor him in my thoughts, with my desires? Did I honor him publicly with my choices, with my decisions, with my interactions? And everything, was he honored? He closes out verse 18 with not just a sign-off, but with what is his slogan for his whole life. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This was who Paul was. So what do you and I do with this life like this? Obviously, Scripture is not written to us just as a moral tale. 
It's not written merely to give us the lives of the greats and say, do your best. Here's a path for you to walk or a model for you to follow. But at the same time, we know that the words the Spirit gave Paul were words like this. You follow me even as I follow Christ. As he followed Christ faithfully to the end, what do I pray that God would help us all to do? Well, I pray that at the very least, all of us in this room would know well your enemies in this life. You would know well your true enemies in this life. And you wouldn't wait until you're in the middle of the conflict, or worse yet, until you find you're losing the battle before you devise a reliable means of defense against your real enemies. Now, for some of you, you might think, well, I know who my enemies are. And you're already naming them. You're identifying them. But Paul wrote to us, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminding us that our enemies are not people, no matter what people do. We battle not, he says, against flesh and blood. It's principalities and powers. It's spiritual wickedness that we fight against. It's the deception. It's the lostness. It's the confusion. It's the culture. It's all these things. First, let the Lord handle the people. People are the purview of God. Let God change their thinking. Ask God to change their hearts. Ask God to protect you from their evil ways. Put them in God's hands. They are His responsibility. Again, as He said to Timothy, this man, who we identify by name, has done me great harm, but the Lord will handle the coppersmith. The Lord will handle this informer. Put him in God's hands. But for us, for me, for you, the next two are far more important. Our greatest enemy, really, is probably not people. Our greatest enemy is probably within. It's our own hearts. And I think the message we should take from this closing in this letter is that you and I have to guard our own hearts from the allure of this world. I, I know it's just a simple phrase. And we could fly right over it and give it scant attention. There's not attention given to it more in Scripture. But there ought to be something that grabs us about that statement that's really painful, both, both spiritually speaking and emotionally speaking. Here's Demas, who'd been a partner with Paul and Luke and the others in the gospel ministry, but his write-off is this. But Demas, in love with this present world, has abandoned us. That ought to be a warning shot across the bow of every Christian in this room about the potential power of the allurements of this world. When we begin to weigh out the things that we can gain, that we can see and touch and feel and know versus the things that we can't see that are beyond our comprehension or our description or our imagination. Guard your heart from the allure of this world. Certainly there are going to come times where being faithful to Christ will cost you. It might cost you in terms of approval. It might cost you in terms of friendships or relationships. It might cost you in terms of advancement or career. It might cost you in terms of finances or even personal freedoms. I don't know. And you'll be tempted to think the comforts of this world are better or easier. And if not abandoning the causes of Christ, at least to retreat from the, from the battle. Step out of the public debate. Retreat to yourself personally and privately. Guard your heart from the lure of this world. 
and at the same time, steal your spine against the pressure of it. Steal your spine against the pressure of it. You can do your own research on the great terror under Nero. If you want to see what, what real persecution looked like and felt like, and try to imagine the context of early believers, people that are hearing the gospel and the promise of life eternal and the forgiveness of sins and peace with God under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, and knowing that if they choose that, they're rejecting their families and their culture and their government, and they now will stand as enemies against the state. And the level of persecution is not just stereotyping or mockery, but potentially death, and yet they consider Jesus worth it. Imagine, steal your spine. We may never, never face the great terror, but we might. Are you ready to steal your spine against the pressures of this world to give way, to give in? And I pray that God would help us all, like the Apostle Paul, not wait until the end to consider what matters most to us. I think we have a tendency to do that sometimes. There's just something about the advancement of years that focuses and sharpens the perspective on value and priority. It just does. And now I, I may sound like the old guy sitting on the porch telling the kids to get off my lawn. In my mind, I think of myself as much younger, but in the reality of how my back feels this morning, I think of myself much older. But there's something about aging that sharpens the perspective on what matters. For Paul, the sense of what was valuable was keen for him. Don't wait till the end to start thinking about what matters most with your life. That's a recipe for regret and for remorse and for heartache. What ifs? And don't wait till the end to do what matters most. Don't wait till the end to do what matters most. The, me the measure of a life well spent is not just in amount, but in duration, consistency, living well, choosing well living accordingly. And may God help us all. Whatever arena He's placed us, whatever opportunities He's afforded us, whatever situations He's allowed to come against us, may God help us all to live less for ourselves and more for His glory. May that not be some ethereal, spiritualized concept for us as God's people, but real and actionable God, in my life situation right now, the good and the bad, the pretty and the, the ugly, the challenging and the easy, whatever it may be, that I might consciously think, God, how might I shine light on you? How might I reflect you best? How might I best display how good you are? How true is your word? How certain is your promise? how worth you are to me in every regard. May I give you glory, less of me and more of him. May, may our prayer, may our statement, may our, may our life slogan be much like the Apostle Paul's. May it match these words. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me this morning?
Father, whatever age we are today, one thing is certain for us all, we are all approaching the end with no guarantees of, of decades or years or months or even minutes. Father, I pray that as we consider the life of really one of the life, the life of one of the greats, an apostle who forsook all for your namesake, who found his contentment and his satisfaction in you, who remained faithful to the end in a way that we all want to, who when others were falling away or turning away, never did, who was able to say at the end that he finished well, he ran and won, he fought and he won, that he kept the faith, or the life that we, in our heart of hearts, want to live, the success we want to have, Father, I pray that you would challenge us with what it takes to get there. Father, we wouldn't wait till the end to live like it's the end. We wouldn't wait till the last days to decide what really matters and decide what we're going to do with what time we have. But even today, Lord, we make those choices. And Lord, I pray you prepare us for a day that is to come with undivided hearts who do not love this world nor the things in this world, but who have as our highest allegiance and our deepest affections you and what pleases you. And Father, that would have strong, strong backs, strong spines, steeled against the pressures of this world to bow, to succumb, to quit. Father, whatever these days ahead may bring, Father, may we be those things. May we be strong and steadfast. And may we be like, like Paul, confident in your promises, confident in the one who holds us, not because our grip is strong, but because your grip is omnipotently strong. And Lord, because you grip us and hold us, because we trust in your word to us, because we believe these things to be true, that we will stand before you one day and we want to do so with confidence, Lord, may, may we be faithful to you. Lord, may these things mark us all the way to the end, each of us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.